0: All right, while you're settling in, you can open your Bibles or navigate on your devices to Matthew chapter 23. We're studying through the gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 23. We'd like to look at verses 1 through 39 this morning. The topic, Jesus decries the hypocrisy of the Pharisees by pronouncing a series of woes against them. The title of our message, God only woes what I'd be without him. I'd have to sing it. Hey, listen! I first service had no reaction whatsoever. I, I don't know. I'm serious. There was absolutely no. It was terrible. It was as if there was a sign behind me that said, "Don't react to this, no matter what." It was terrible. No, I'm not going to sing it. Chicken. Let's pray. I don't know, I might be able to get over that, but anyway. Father, we do thank you this morning for a joyful heart, Lord, as we approach your word. Uh, Lord, you love us, and, and you love us in a romantic way, even, we read in the scriptures, and there's nothing wrong with us having the joy of the Lord, and that be our strength. We want to have also a settled joy, Lord, that is, is ours in spite of circumstances, uh, even if things are tough, and for many of us here today, Lord, things are tough. There are satanic strategies that are being plotted against us, in some cases that have been sprung upon us. Others are fighting illness, uh, Lord, uh, or, or some accident has befallen us, or things just aren't going as well as we would like them to. And so, Lord, we, we need a, a word of encouragement from you, and we pray that this would be it, that your spirit would take this text and reach into our hearts with your love with your mercy and with your grace. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed, said amen. Armin Mola was diagnosed with bone cancer when he was just 15 years old. When Make-A-Wish contacted Armin, he asked for something no one had ever wished before. He decided what he really wanted more than anything wasn't to parachute out of a plane. He didn't want a Disney cruise or to meet his favorite movie star. He wanted a mentor, someone to take him under his wing and show him how the business world works. The people at Make-A-Wish were accustomed to making big things happen. They offered to get Armin a meeting with Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. Then Armin threw them for another loop. He said, no thanks. He wanted someone whom they could really get to know. Touched by the request, one of the board members who works in finance decided to take Armin on personally, and they have since developed a close mentoring relationship. Now, the thing that attracted me to this story was that familiar phrase, take him under his wing. We use it mostly to describe taking an interest in someone to instruct them and train them. It's borrowed, obviously, from the world of birds who quite literally take their young under their wings for protection from things like the sun and the weather and predators. It's a favorite illustration in the Bible of God's overall care for his people, Here are just a few of the many wing references, and these are just a few from the book of Psalms. Psalm 17, verse 8 Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, verse 7 How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Psalm 61, verse 4 I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Psalm 63, verse 7 Because you have been my help, therefore, in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. And Psalm 91 verse 4, he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. Jesus says to the Jews of Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hand gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's in verse 37 of our text. One reason the people were not willing is given in the verses that precede Jesus' lament over the people in the city he loved. Their religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, discouraged the Jews from following Jesus. Jesus describes their leadership as blind, burdensome, foolish, and hypocritical. As mentors, they took Jews under their wings, so to speak, but once under there, their followers were systematically stifled and smothered rather than nurtured and protected. Jesus' disciples were going to go into the world making disciples of their own. They would be taking people under their wings. What would it be like under their wings? What should it be like? That's what we're going to discover in chapter 23. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, what is it like for people who are taken under your wings? And number two, what is it like for people who refuse to be taken under Jesus' wings? First of all, in verses 1 through 33, what is it like for people taken under your wings? Now, what the world calls mentoring, we have traditionally called discipling. Whether we're talking about a formal, structured program of discipling like Operation Timothy or casual relationships between mature believers and younger ones, it's discipling. Since the Great Commission to go and make disciples applies to every Christian, at some point or another, someone or some group of believers is going to be under your wings. And so you need to make sure your wings are spiritually preened And by that I mean we need to learn what not to be like from the negative example of these Pharisees. And so beginning in verse one, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, therefore whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Now scribes had knowledge of the law and they could draft legal documents. Every village had at least one scribe. Most scribes were Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes, if that makes sense. It's good to be reminded that the Pharisees started well. They were the spiritual guys who wanted to keep separated from the world. They were religious conservatives. They were Jewish patriots. And as we will see, they were evangelical. That's how you would describe many of us, right? Conservative, patriot, evangelicals. Furthermore, they sat in Moses' seat, meaning they were the ones who believed in the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. Sounds even more like us, but obviously there are things about them we do not want to resemble. Jesus went so far as to tell his disciples, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. In other words, insofar as they expose you to the word of God, and they just show you what the Bible is saying, you should be ready to submit and obey to God's word. But the problem is they say and do not do. And the remaining verses about the Pharisees will expand on what Jesus meant. Jesus, what do you mean they say but do not do? Well, here he goes. He says, verse four, they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. I see this in part as referring to what we would call legalism. They held to a strict interpretation of the letter of God's law while ignoring the spirit of the law. Thus, they could drag a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, throw her down before him, and demand that she be stoned, and all of it was really just a test for the Lord, not caring a whit for the woman's eternal soul. And all the while themselves filled with secret sins of the heart, far more heinous than hers. And so this is the spirit of legalism. It doesn't really account for the individual it just is worried about what is happening externally outwardly keeping laws rules and regulations there must be compassion under our wings and an understanding of the spirit of the law as we seek to lift folks up not keep them down Jesus when he dealt with that woman he was able to say where are your accusers and she said I have none And he said what go and sin no more forgiving her and giving her the grace to say no to sin And so jesus doesn't ignore sin but he deals with it in a way that is uh... appropriate he deals with it the way god has dealt with it by applying his uh, blood of forgiveness and then the strength to endure without sinning and and so we don't want to become legalists we don't want to be those guys that are heaping burdens upon people In many cases that we cannot even bear verse 5 all their works they do only to be seen by men Jesus knew their motives and it was to be seen by other men to receive the praise of men to be thought great by men we should not judge motives but we can look at behavior and see if a person is calling attention to himself or to herself rather than to Jesus and sadly some people do this in the body of Christ they Maybe inadvertently, but usually not, they are calling attention to themselves. Uh, Jesus says, for example, of the Pharisees, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. In the book of Deuteronomy, describing the words of God, the Jews are told, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It's figurative language. It means that God's word should direct your actions As if it were written on your hands, and it should filter everything you take in as if it is in the middle of your eyes. The Pharisees took this literally, and they wore leather prayer boxes with scripture verses in them, tied on their foreheads and on their forearms. These are the phylacteries that you've seen uh, Jews wearing. I went online just for fun. Phylacteries are expensive. And there's all kinds of phylacteries. You get into the $1,000 range, and you're talking about the Cadillac phylacteries. And don't think people don't know how much these things cost. You know? So it'd be like if we all were wearing uh, prayer boxes, you know, and I came in with just, you know, look at Pastor Gene. Man, how much scripture must he have packed in there? He can't even keep his head up, you know? <laughs> And it was only to call attention to yourself. First of all, it wasn't a practice God really wanted them to do. It was figurative. And then they they made kind of an industry out of it. Hey, I've got the, you know, Rabbi Hillel has the latest in phylacteries. I mean, this thing is gorgeous. They could barely lift their arms and hold their heads up. And people were being directed to them As far as the borders of their garments, again, these were to be sewn on simply to set Jews apart from non-believers so they could be recognized in a crowd. The Pharisees tried to outdo one another as to the length of their borders, again, attracting attention to themselves. Verse 6, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Now later in the New Testament, we see certain gifts and gifted men in the church who have titles like pastor or elder or teacher or deacon. And so there's nothing wrong with a title if it's simply a designation of a person's gifting. The problem Jesus is speaking to is when men seek titles and authority that God has not given them, and then they demand to be followed, as if they have uh, heaven's authority. Under our wings, folks should know that the single authority in their lives is Jesus Christ. Now, to the extent he delegates authority to gifted men, and they are godly and follow the scriptures, they can be respected But we are never to lord over others. We are to point them away from us and to Jesus Christ. Everybody needs to see Jesus. Uh, Discipleship, actually interesting. Everybody has a different idea of discipleship. Some people think it has to be a super formal process, six-week class of discipleship. Other churches don't even talk about discipleship. Whatever we determine and decide on as a fellowship, the goal is to get people independent of men and women and dependent upon Jesus Christ. You're always trying to get people under your wings to come out from there. I mean, birds, you know, they grow, right? They, 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 they come out from under the wings and then they have families of their own. And so discipleship is essentially having people come under the authority of Christ, and so we're not wanting people to look to us or to, uh, you know, be in that kind of a relationship, but to be standing on their own two feet. And here's how we do just that: verse eleven or twelve, or at least how we model it. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. A servant must at some point serve. Now that sounds funny, but I've known a lot of people over the years who, because they think they're gifted as leaders and teachers, will only serve in that capacity they're only looking to lead and serve and teach others hand them a broom or a toilet plunger and they'll either set it down or go looking for someone less gifted who can accomplish such a menial task uh... because that that's obviously below them uh... obviously never read jesus where he washed the feet of his disciples taking the lowest task you find true spiritual greatness when you find a servant who is content to point you away from themselves and to Jesus. Jesus next launched into a series of eight woes. The Lord was expressing sorrow for them and for what they were doing to drive men away from God. He says, verse 13, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, "'for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. "'You neither go in yourselves, "'nor do you allow those who are entering to go in.'" John the Baptist had called for repentance, announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, He pointed to Jesus as the rightful king. Jesus went about for three and a half years, offering to establish the kingdom on the earth. The Pharisees refused to repent. They rejected Jesus, and they did everything in their power to actively discourage the Jews from following the Lord. Do we ever shut up the kingdom of heaven against men? I think we can if we start to add things to the salvation formula of by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. When we demand folks keep the Sabbath or they be baptized or speak in tongues in order to be saved, we are shutting up the kingdom to them by adding a burden to the gospel. Some of you have been under wings like those and you remember how stifling it was. You're always talking about something other than Jesus Christ. You're not really evangelizing to bring people to Christ. You're bringing people to your doctrine, to your belief in the Sabbath, to your belief about baptism, to your belief about speaking in tongues. And it's crushing and it's stifling when a relationship with Jesus Christ should be freeing and liberating. And it it actually keeps men from the Lord. Verse 14, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers.'" Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Now, the Pharisees depended on their disciples to support their ministries. This verse describes them as robbing widows. And they did it under a religious pretense. Somehow, they convinced widows to give them their money. And so, we want to be extra cautious, therefore, to never coerce people who are under our wing into supporting the work of God should you support the work of God absolutely should we coerce you into doing it should we uh, you know guilt you into doing it should we make you feel bad if you're not doing it absolutely not and so we have to be very careful about that woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte when he's one you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves A proselyte was either a Gentile who totally converted to Judaism or a resident alien who agreed to follow what the Jews called the seven laws of Noah. Today, there are groups of people who do this. They're called Noahites. Apparently, the Pharisees were zealous in promoting their brand of self-righteousness. Today, we compare the Mormons or the JWs who go door to door to win converts. They make them twice as much the sons of hell as they are in that they are promoting a false salvation whose final destination is hell. And so if you're, if you're not saved and promoting a false gospel and you have a convert to that, that person is twice as bad off as you are, uh, is what Jesus is saying. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's ob- obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools, blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. The Pharisees would swear oaths in order to make themselves seem spiritual. But they made distinctions that could invalidate their oaths. Do you remember when you were a kid and you used to promise something, but your fingers were crossed behind your back? Remember? It invalidated anything. You could promise anything as long as your fingers were crossed behind your back. You didn't have to do a thing. The magic of the fingers. And that's exactly what these guys were doing only very, oh, I swear by the altar. And you go, well, you know, you swore to give me this money. (laughs) By the altar, I meant, you know, if I meant it, it would have been the gold of the altar, and it was like a, you know, that kind of a thing. And and Jesus says, can you see how stupid this is? Uh, And yet it had become a practice among them. We ought to be honest and open with those under our wings. No need for oaths, certainly without being deceptive in any way. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Tithing was a huge deal to these guys. They made you weigh out herbs from your herb garden and give God 10% of mint and anise and cumin. And so they tithed everything. Now God required the tithe, but it was no substitute for the spirit of the law, things like justice and mercy and and faith in other words ritual doesn't substitute for reality do you give to the work of God you should how much that's up to you ten percent is a good place to start if you give or if you give of your time serving it's not a substitute for the weightier matters of the law you need to be listening to God be ready to show his character at all times in other words, under your wings, you must demonstrate that you and everything you have are gods, 100% of the time, to use as he might direct you. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They literally strain their beverages so as not to swallow an insect that would be considered unclean by the law. I did this once in Louisiana. I was performing a wedding in Louisiana. Some of you, how many you from the south? How many have been to Louisiana? I, I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm not. It was just hard for me because the place is full of bugs—big bugs, little bugs, bugs that like to eat. Um, but anyway, uh, and, and I, you know, and the Southern people, great hospitality. But I mean, we didn't start eating dinner till like 9:30 at night. I was getting emaciated, you know, and stuff. And then everything is outdoors, and there are bugs on everything. There was some kind of uh, like a jam that you, you know, and bugs were stuck there. (laughs) And I couldn't tell if other people had a way of scooping around them or if they were just swallowing them. For non-religious reasons, I didn't want to swallow gnats. (laughs) And so I didn't eat very, well, aren't you hungry? No, not really. Not too hungry. Uh, And then I had to go around, then I had to go around with my drink with a plate over it they said, what are you doing? And then I realized I was offending everyone because I was the kid from California who wouldn't swallow a gnat. You know what? So what? But anyway, <laughs> these guys literally strained out their drinks so that they were gnat-free. You could be a big industry, the gnat-free industry, you know, and stuff. But anyway, so Jesus says, yeah, that's great, but because of the way you act, you might as well be swallowing a camel which is the largest unclean beast that he could think of. Under our wings, people should see the big picture. For example, as long as there's a world to reach for Jesus, we should have no time or energy for petty issues. Yet how much of our time is dedicated to whether or not someone in the church waved to us? This would be a big problem for me over the years. People telling me that I didn't wave to them so I'm waving to you all now I'm pre-waving it's like a you know whenever you sign up for sign and so occasionally now when I'm driving in my car I will just wave for no for no apparent reason I never bother you if you don't wave at me I'm happy don't wave at me I, I keep driving then I don't have to risk the injury and accident and stuff you know but anyway some people they actually get pretty upset about little things like this under your wings, you want to promote a big picture mentality. There are Christians in Iraq getting beheaded. Does it really matter what color our carpet is? Let's just pick a color and move on. That, that's what I'm talking about. The American church needs to man up a little bit and, and not be so touchy about things that are really ultimately, and not even ultimately, but even right now, they're not important. Uh, and, and you know, some of you know, some churches. Are dominated by these kinds of issues. Verse 25 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites, where you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. This isn't talking about washing your dishes, which is a good idea. It's referring to specific ritual washings you were required to perform before you could eat or drink from your dishes. And some of them were rituals not prescribed at all. In God's law, they were added by the Pharisees so that they would appear more spiritual. So they would take something in God's law and say, you should wash a certain way and say, how can we wash even more and look even more? Sp- if, you, if you're supposed to wash the inside, let's wash the outside and then let's sweep the house and let's, let's really get into this ritual cleansing to show how spiritual we are. Jesus is reminding them that the rituals God prescribed were intended to remind them of the need for inner cleansing that had nothing to do with the external. It's what we might call the pursuit of holiness. Under our wings, we need to be pursuing holiness with the people that are looking up to us. Verse 27 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, Under the law, you were considered ceremonially unclean and couldn't do certain things in the temple if you inadvertently touched a dead body or a tomb. Tombs were regularly whitewashed to mark them so you would avoid them. They didn't always bury people in neat cemeteries like we have, and so you could be walking along and before you know it, you walk by or touch a tomb or come into proximity, and so they were whitewashed so that you would keep away from them. Lawlessness is better translated uncleanness, referring to moral and or physical impurity. I could apply this to believers who have taken their liberties in Christ too far in that they want to flaunt them in front of others. Under wings like that lurks danger for believers who can be led into sin, stumbled into partaking of things that are not right for them. Like it or not, if you're a Christian, your behavior matters to other Christians. Uh, and, and what you do, especially what you do publicly, everybody has a right to have an opinion about. I'm not saying their opinions are always right, but we live in community. And so even Paul the Apostle talking about this issue in the New Testament, he said, if you wanna do certain things that would potentially stumble other believers and cause them to sin, then do it alone at your house by yourself with God have your liberty that way. Don't flaunt it in front of everybody because you are going to stumble somebody. And Jesus said, if you stumble somebody, it's, it'd be better for you if you had a hundred pound weight hung around your neck and you fell into the deepest part of the ocean. It's a very important issue, something that at least we should struggle with. I have to be honest with you, more and more, I just see believers throwing out this kind of restraint and living out their liberties in front of everybody, flaunting them, and it's just not right. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. You are witnesses against yourselves. You are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? No way they would have killed the prophets, or so they thought. While they were saying that, they were planning to kill the prophet Moses prophesied, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So they said, yeah, we, we wouldn't have killed any of the prophets, we're going to kill you. It's crazy. Under your wings is Jesus your all in all. Is he everything to you? Is he the answer you seek and the answer you give when asked the most important questions in life? Under your wings should not be a place for worldly wisdom, for the philosophies of men. It should be the place where the gospel is the power of God to salvation and where God the Holy Spirit is depended upon to transform lives. Maybe this will help. Whatever you have found that is gracious and merciful and wonderful under the wings of Jesus Christ, that is what others ought to be able to find under your wings because he is your model and you want to be Christ-like. Now, what is it like for people who refuse to be taken under Jesus' wings? The Pharisees did everything they could to keep Jews from following Jesus, The result of the official rejection of Jesus as king by Israel would be their destruction and dispersion throughout the world for a time of national discipline. Here's how Jesus depicted it, beginning in verse 34. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus not only foresaw his own death, he plainly told the Pharisees they would murder some of the messengers who he would send immediately after him. Some who escaped martyrdom would be scourged in synagogues and persecuted from city to city. This is exactly what you see happening in the book of Acts with individuals like Stephen and James and especially the apostle Paul. By seeing to it Jesus was killed, and by killing those who came after him, they would show they were exactly like their forefathers, if not much worse. Surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. We have the benefit of history and know what he was talking about. He's talking about the uh, siege and sacking of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire in, uh, in and around 70 A.D., Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under a wing, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. In spite of all the rebellion of Israel for centuries, all the blood they shed by killing God's servants, the Lord desired to shelter and to protect and to instruct, to save them by taking them under the strong shelter of his wings by establishing their kingdom on the earth. Instead, the Roman eagle would swoop down upon them, unprotected and vulnerable, leaving their house, their temple, their nation, desolate. Note in passing, Jesus has now twice mentioned hell. Both times he meant the place of eternal conscious torment, Refuse to be taken under his wings. Hell is your destiny. Allow me to spend just a moment on the Lord's analysis that he was willing to save them. They were unwilling to be saved. Jesus thought grace was resistible. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and faith. His grace in salvation works upon your heart to free your will to be able to receive or reject eternal life. If you're not a believer, God's grace is working to free your will right now so you can decide whether to receive him or go on rejecting him. His desire is to take you under the shelter of his wings and believe me, that's the only place of safety in these last days. Verse 39, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As a point of fact, after Jesus rose from the dead, he was seen only by believers. No non-believing Jew or Gentile laid eyes on him. Big, big promise here. Jesus will return to the nation of Israel and the Jews who are alive when he does will receive him and he will establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Again, I would address any non-believer here today. Think hard about this illustration of the wings. You spend a lifetime desiring a relationship in which you are loved, cherished, accepted, protected, one in which you can grow and realize your potential, where you can be you and become the you that you want to be. You won't find wings like that except in Jesus Christ. There is no person on earth that you've met or are going to meet that can provide what you are seeking ultimately because God says he has put eternity in your heart and no finite being, no finite situation can provide what only God can provide. And yet Jesus is looking at the world right now and he's saying, would to God that you would come under the shelter of my wings, that you would be saved. And, and sending his grace to free the will so that people can decide and ultimately those who reject Christ he would say to you you were not willing I was willing I died on the cross I rose from the dead I invited you you were not willing and your destination is hell now for us as believers like it or not people will come under your wings as you go through your walk whether you consider yourself a discipler, whether you set out a sign that says, I'd like to disciple people, or whether you're just an average run-of-the-mill Joe or Jane Christian, you're going to influence other believers. What is it really like under our wings? That's the question today. Let's pray.